0: Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 5 of season 2 of the Asking for a Parent podcast. It's me, Dr. Coleman and it's a real pleasure to get to chat to you again. I want to say thanks to everyone who's continuing to listen, download and share the podcast. Season 2 has been phenomenally successful again. We're just delighted with the response and we're really happy to hear that so many people are, are listening and sharing and downloading and getting something from the podcast. And a big thanks to... Jen Hogan, Dervil O'Rourke, and all the other guests who've been so brilliant so far. And today's guest is no different. Uh, Today, a man who is a father of a child with additional needs, but as an individual, someone who has shown great grit and perseverance and many of the skills and attributes that I think we all need during lockdowns and to try and survive this third one is particularly challenging. And I just think, again, the school closures, the accumulations of stress and this is really, really challenging, and juggling all the demands that are there at the moment for all of us in a really kind of lonely and, and sometimes isolated environment is really difficult. But I just hope everyone's doing okay out there, and I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Tom Cloner. Anyway, on to today's
1: guest. It gives me great pleasure to introduce my guest this week to the Asking for a Parent podcast. My guest today is someone I met years ago when myself and Shay Byrne, uh, a previous guest on this podcast, interviewed him during Mental Health Week. The reason he was asked on as a guest with that theme in mind was because throughout his life he's been called upon to exercise resilience, perseverance and grit. My guest today served in the Irish Army and was on multiple tours to more torn countries. He also stood up to a very established system in the form of a whistleblower as he defended the rights of of others and incidentally won his issue around that. He also is the father of a young man with additional needs who he advocates and fights tirelessly for in terms of services, human rights and equality. And every time I meet this man, I leave the room with more hope in my heart and more focus in my mind and sometimes even more fire in my belly uh, for making things right. I have no doubt that when you listen to him today, you'll have a similar effect on you. So therefore, it is a great privilege for me to welcome to the Asking for a Parent podcast, author, security analyst, a lecturer, ex-Army captain, equality campaigner, and father, Mr. Tom Clonan. How are you, Tom?
2: I'm good, Coleman. Thanks very much. That was a, a very uh, generous description. I'm not sure if that person is in the
1: room. But <laughs> I'll do my best to, to try and make sense anyway. So come here, Tom. To situate listeners, we're... Kind of second, first week of homeschooling, we're kind of mid-January, we're in lockdown three, been a really challenging 12 months for everybody. But in terms of, for you, how has it been? How are you now? How's the last 11 months been for you?
2: Yeah, so it it has been tough. So to just put that in context, I'm I'm in my attic here and uh, I'm working from home, as so many people are. And I'm very lucky. And I'm very privileged to be able to work. And my income hasn't been af- by, hasn't been impacted by this awful crisis. But in the house, which is just a, a normal semi-detached house, I've got a 20-year-old who's second year in UCD. He's in the room directly beneath me. I don't know if he's awake or asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I have Owen, who's 18. He's doing his Leaving Cert. Owen is, uh, has a neuromuscular disease, a rare disease. And he's a wheelchair user. He is uh, partially sighted, and he's down doing his Zoom classes as we speak for the, for the Leaving Cert. I have a sixteen-year-old daughter, who is in transition year, and then my youngest guy, he's thirteen. He's in in first year in secondary school. So there's four, there's five of us in the house. There's owns assistance dog. There's a retired assistance dog and a cat, and we have been in the house now for a year and i think they're planning a regime change downstairs i think it's, it's very very tough it's it's a real pressure cooker for us uh, and i'm sure it is for for everybody and and i've been kind of thinking over the the year like you mentioned the the army experience so uh i have been in an environment where there's a threat so for example in 95 and 96 i was in lebanon uh and there was an escalation of violence there in what the israelis called operation grapes of wrath and and we were effectively human shields the irish troops there in south lebanon human shields between hezbollah on the one side on the one hand and the israeli military on the other and march and april of 1996 were very very violent months and hundreds and hundreds of people were killed in our area of operations and we were going out every day to houses that had been collapsed by Uh, Missile strikes, helicopter, gunship attacks and so on. And assisting the engineers and the medics and Médecins Frontier, the Red Crescent, to to take bodies, whole families out of buildings. So that was very visceral and very uh, immediate and real. And as a young young officer and as a young man, I was conscious of the danger. So we had these big Israeli gun positions uh, on the hill overlooking us. And I had to go out and, and lead patrols uh three in every twenty four hours at least when we weren 't responding to incidents and I knew that at any moment uh those fire bases could open up, and I had seen with my own eyes the impact of of those weapon systems on 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 people, so it was like every day living with that threat now the reason why i 'm saying all this is because whilst that was difficult um we we were so busy and it was so physical. So you could actually do something about it. We were going out, we were helping people. Every patrol brought closure. Every incident that we attended ended up in a, in a kind of a, a result that you could measure and quantify. And we were so full of adrenaline and just physical movements that uh, we were able to deal with the, the stress and the threat. But the most important thing was we had an end date. So I knew when I was going to be flying back to Ireland. So I had a definite point on the horizon where it was all going to stop. So I've been thinking about the last year. So it's not the same as opening my front door and being afraid that, you know, something might detonate or somebody's going to take a shot at me. But, but the threat is still there. So the, if you like the, the stimulus, the, you're you're high, you're aware of a, of a threat you you can't see it it's very difficult to quantify it and most importantly there's very little you can do apart from wash your hands and wear a face mask so your sense of control is is taken away from you and critically there is no end in sight so irish people uh we, we've had this for a year now and there's no end in sight and that that is really really difficult for for people, I mean, when I compare it to what I experienced in, in the Defence Forces, you know, there are similarities, but there are aspects of this that make it, I think, very, very difficult. So I think people, you know, they shouldn't be hard on themselves and feel, oh, gosh, am, am I being a snowflake because I'm finding this hard? You know, I've seen stuff on online where they say, you know, this generation's challenge is all you have to do is sit in the couch, drink wine and watch Netflix you know, our grandparents had to go up Omaha Beach or they had to deal with the blitz or whatever. Yeah, fine. But that is not to take away from the, the very real um, stress that's entailed in this thing. It's, it's, it's very, very difficult. And then you factor in people with uh, elderly parents or people whose income is impacted. And then you've got a real perfect storm. I think it's really, really difficult for people. Now, we, we have a vulnerable person in the house, Owen, because of his neuromuscular disease he's only got about 20 or 30 percent lung function so if he were to get the virus he, he'd he be in very very serious trouble and as we speak we're at the very very peak or spike of the infection rate our hospitals are very very full so that that's an additional worry Owen's mum is a doctor in in a in a hospital in in Dublin so she's going in and out every day and so we have to you know, deal with that risk as well of exposure to the virus on the front line and then coming back and bringing it into the home. So I think when I think about this, I think about the whole, everybody is in the same boat. Everybody in the country is, uh, although some some boats are in better shape than others. So like, we're very lucky our, for over our heads, but we do have a vulnerable person. there. I know that there are people out there who are in very, very difficult circumstances. So I, I think Coleman in years to come, this is going to be a very interesting point in time uh, in terms of our social history as to how people coped uh, with this lockdown and you know when when it is in the rearview mirror and when it is over whenever that end date is we don't know where it is but it is there and we're we're getting closer to it each day we just we don't know when the end date is just yet but i think in the aftermath there's going to be some very interesting Discussions about how pe- how people cope with this. So I suppose what I'm what I'm trying to say is, for if people are feeling under pressure, d- don't feel guilty about that. It is it's it's tough, and don't be afraid to ask for help or or talk to somebody about it. You know.
1: And can I ask you, Tom? I mean, the, the issue around like if you are in the Lebanon and you're the kind of invisible threat, and you're trying to manage the uncertainty, and there's an an infiniteness to it. And, you know, it's kind of going out three times a day. What, How do you manage that? Or what gets you through it in terms of, is it camaraderie? Is it community? Is it connection? Because I think a lot of the things that we talk about, you know, in terms of mental fitness, like, you know, talk to someone, hug someone, connect with somebody, a lot of those things are maybe not available to us at the moment. So it's kind of, it relies heavily on our own, kind of individual coping strategies to get through it. And, you know, I, I'm guessing having been through those experiences, you would have had to dig deep from time to time to, to, to manage and get through it. What, what, what would have helped around that time? Or can you remember about what you did to get through that?
2: Yeah. Well, w- one of the things was uh, shared values. So there was a really strong value consensus in the army. Like we all, we all understood the mission, which was to save life or to try and protect life. And everybody was invested in that. Everybody knew exactly what their role was. And so I was the officer in command of a thing called the Battalion Mobile Reserve. So we were like the, the 911. And our job was to respond to a crisis anywhere in the area of operations So if we had an armed standoff at a checkpoint, if we had a house that was destroyed by a missile strike or an airstrike, we would provide the security whilst the engineers and the medics went in to get people out. So we all, everybody had a a, a shared understanding of why we were there and what we had to do. And we all felt that what we were doing was valuable, that it was pro-social. So that kind of helped to... I don't know, lubricate the situation. It, it ha- We were all on the same page, as it were. Now, in terms of coping, then, so for me it was easy because I, I was I was in charge, and as an officer in 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 the army, you are responsible for everything that happens or fails to happen within the unit. No, no pressure. So you were very busy. Uh, so I had um, somebody in charge of me at battalion operations. And I trusted him. I trusted the battalion commander. I actually did trust them, and I felt that the orders that they gave me and the conditions that we were operating under were, you know, I always felt supported by them, and that I that they had my back. So that thing about value consensus for me was, was very very important. That we all had these shared values, and in the army, that's kind of st- straightforward. I think I think what's difficult for for people in the current crisis is that there isn't perhaps that value consensus that not everybody is on the same page so at one extreme you have people who feel that um the virus is is a hoax and that uh, vaccines are dangerous and you shouldn't take them so you've got you've got that cohort who who don't buy into the 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 crisis narrative and then at the other extreme you have people for whom they feel that the, the rules don't apply to them so i think that's why there was such upset at things like golf gate where public figures were acting as though, as though the rules didn't apply to them. So for example, when I was in, in Lebanon, the battalion commander suffered the same privations that I did. And like when we were being shelled and hockeyed out of us, like he wasn't up in Beirut playing golf. (laughs)
0: He,
2: He was there in the trenches with us and we were all, we were all together. So we had that sense of, um, of community, there was a bond, um, which was a real privilege to be a part of. And what I remember most about that pressured environment was the worst things got, and they got really bad towards the end. There was a massacre in a village called Quanna, and 117 men, women, and children were were killed in one incident. And Irish troops from all over Ireland, from Donegal, from the Cora, from Kildare from Dublin, from Cork, they were attended that scene of absolute. It was it was devastating, and it was completely anarchic. It wasn't like a road traffic accident. There was still people shooting. It, it was a free. It was a situation that was in free fall. and in that environment, those those guys, those men and women, young men and women, with no most of them with no training as paramedics whatsoever you know they were, they were just so amazing the way they um responded to the situation they were the best that they could be they did their job they kept the place secure and they provided comfort to people who were in extremis tried to give to give help where they could so the worst things got the better these young soldiers performed i, I, I that's the one thing that i'll never forget and i think we've seen that through this crisis um, with COVID, you know, I'm struck by how uh, people on the front line have performed, teachers in schools, and in fairness, the I don't envy the government, the, the choices and the decisions that they've had to make, but when you look at other jurisdictions, some not so far from here, <laughs> our, our politicians have, have really performed, I think, to, to a very, very high standard in very, very difficult, uh, unpredictable unpredict- circumstances. So, that would be the thing. Now you, you mentioned hugs and in, in the, in the army, there wasn't that we didn't, we didn't hug each other, but do you know, it, it was a very intimate workplace. So I, I'm a, a lecturer in technological university, Dublin and TU Dublin. And I mean, in the 20 years that I've been in TU Dublin, I, I don't think I've ever hugged anybody, <laughs> but I've never, I've never, uh, the, the compared to the army, uh like the army i know it's characterized in popular culture and in in academic narratives as being a very formal hierarchical environment but it it is it is the most sort of intimate informal workplace that that you can imagine so so we all ate together slept together on those patrols we were all crammed into vehicles together so, there were times when you you would physically grab grab onto somebody to to either keep them upright or you know to stay upright yourself like the 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 intimacy and and the relationships the 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 friendships that flowed from that and um, so there were soldiers that i s uh, that I had the privilege of serving with in lebanon and we became very very close in in that environment so that that was really powerful that that kind of bonding. As as a coping mechanism, so whilst we didn't kind of hug each other or talk about our how we felt, there was that kind of very how would you put it, kind of like a high tempo operating environment that brought us all together. I was like kind of like I think it's called goal or goal oriented bomb, and a lot of uh, very black humour. So that I think that was the escape valve for people. Is you know the the dark humor and the and the black humor that kind of brought us all together. And and you now the army has changed a lot since then in the last uh, thirty years, thankfully. But but one other coping mechanism was alcohol and you know a, a bit of um, habitual heavy drinking amongst at 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 the height of that sort of crisis. And people might think, well where where did you get the opportunity to have a drink in the, middle, in the middle of all of that but it was literally in march and april of 96 when when things were really really bad so we were out patrolling uh all of the time and attending incidents and all the all the water the, the we lost our running water in Allerton in in the position that I was at so we we couldn't wash we couldn't change our clothes we took in the all the local villagers we, we brought them onto our position to shelter them and um, so all we had was bottled water you couldn't wash yourself and i had very li- very little sleep but the only hard structure on alietona apart from a bunker but we couldn't go into the bunkers because when you're in command position you 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 have to be in command you've got to be able to see what's going on so the only hard structure was it was an old villa that was in the middle of that um uh, compound and it was on the highest point of the compound and uh, we were in that and like the dust was coming off the walls with the from the amount of shelling and the the shock waves from the, the weapon systems that were being deployed at us. And every now and again somebody would pass around a bottle. <laughs> People would take a big a big swig of it, just like almost like in the movies. But but that was part of the, the coping mechanism. Now uh we back in ninety-five-96, we had begun to come to terms or the the army the irish army as an organization had identified a phenomenon called traumatic stress debriefing so this was a kind of a a forerunner to the recognition of what's what's known as a combat stress reaction or chronic stress reaction csr and so this is recognized by the international military as a kind of a an automatic organic and natural response to stress so if you're in a very very stressful environment for a period of weeks and months and you're going out on patrols and and people are you, you know you know that you could be killed and you're seeing civilians innocent civilians men women and children being killed then you know you're you, you will develop a stress reaction and you're you're supposed to treat that you treat the chronic stress reaction and then you're you're okay so you can recover from stress and trauma if it if it, if you recognize it and if it's treated if you don't treat it, it goes on then to become a uh, post traumatic stress disorder because it's un- untreated and you don't deal with it and um, so
1: after and what was the treatment Tom?
2: <laughs> so <laughs> after we we were invited there, there was the battalion mobile reserve because we were out patrolling and the, we were at the on the front line as it were for all of these things we were invited up to battalion headquarters to meet the the Battalion Commander and his staff, and he said, "Look, we have to do this post traumatic stress debriefing, so none of us here are trained in it but the uh the padre the battalion chaplain a priest he he has volunteered to talk you know to to take on this role, even though he had no training in that area but he he was very well intentioned, so we were in a a, a, a briefing room, and we were all there we were filthy." covered in dirt, and, you know, we're all there, we're very, very tired, and we knew we had to go back out again, and the Padre came in, and he said, look, he said, you've all seen terrible things, and you'll see more terrible things, and he said, and I know that some of you believe in God, some of you don't believe in God, but I think it would really help all of us if we said a decade of the Rosary, and he went, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and uh, so we all kind of, we went along with it, and we, we, you know, we said a decade of the Rosary, but it was, the, it was the source of much much laughter afterwards. It, look, it, at the time, it was the best that they could do or the best that we could do. But certainly in the months and years after that, uh, I would say everybody that was on that trip had to, at some point, confront you know what had happened and and deal with it. And uh, I, I think for some of the guys, I, I know with certainty that some some of the guys um, didn't manage to get back to where they were before they left on that trip so they they never really came home the same person that they that they had left but we all had to move on but but and I do think that in the current crisis this covid crisis like for okay I'm a lay person I I don't know about this so I'm, sp- I'm I'm speaking to you now you're you're the expert but my my sense of it is that for every stress like that, like there is there is a reaction. It, it finds expression somewhere, somehow. And this incremental kind of low-level stress that everybody has been experiencing for the last um, year with no certainty about when it will end or where, where the exit is, that, I think that will find expression with, with all of us, whether it's an extra glass of wine in front of the TV or whether it's, uh, you know... Trying to become, you know, trying to get your personal best, you know, running and doing a triathlon or sea swimming in your in your dry robe, or you know, irritability, you know, uh, heightened uh, startle response.
1: In religion. I think I think you're right, Tom, and I, I I think sometimes the cost of the the mental health cost of the pandemic may not be visible yet. You know, from the point of view of, and I do think there's something about survival mode. Do you know what I mean? When you're in that, when I'm thinking about you in those circumstances and your platoon, I mean, it's not about, you can't do meditation and mindfulness and you can't, you know, run it off or go for a brisk walk or whatever the the things that we might do now. And those things maybe aren't for everyone either. Do you know what I mean? So from the point of view, you have to find ways of coping. And I think what you mentioned about the shared values is really interesting because I think that's something that was probably very much part of our Culture in March, April of last year, with the front liners and 're all out applauding and things. but you can see kind of rifts or derision kind of creeping in of you know government v nephi and parents v teachers and you know this different kind of splits and, and kind of which I think is probably a, a measure of fatigue but i 'm guessing in the military there isn 't a, a kind of a room for that 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 shared value system. Has to to hold firm, and I and I, I genuinely believe, in terms of the the the, the anti-vaxxers or those who are, are not complying, are probably ten percent. But they are probably getting a lot. Of, I think a lot of the decisions are maybe made based on those that ten percent. If that makes sense, you know, from the, mm. the lowest common denominator. But as an observer of kind of social cultural issues. The, the way in which the shared value system, you, you would see that as still very much intact. And uh, the last question I would ask is, why has there not been civil unrest? I mean, uh, again, I'm delighted there hasn't been, but it was some, one of the things that has surprised me. And in your experience, what is that about?
2: Well, I think I think it's because our our needs, such as they are, are being met to a certain extent. So, you know, our supermarket shelves are still, you know, like, when, so when you think of like something like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we are, you know, we're to feed ourselves. So there's no, no kind of moral panic or uh, mass. Pa- now, If you remember at the beginning of this crisis, there was a bit of a moral panic, which found expression in purchasing toilet rolls. <laughs> and uh, I remember in another crisis with Beast from the East, it was sliced pans. So there was that little bit of panic. But then people were reassured when they saw that the supermarket shelves were filled. Um, Schools reopened. The government made available the uh, payments to support people through this crisis. So I I think that, you know, our political leaders, and we're very, very critical of them, myself included, um, they did actually kind of pull together. Um, In the early part of the crisis, I would say Leo Varadkar was, was very, very clear in his messaging. So he gave a press conference in Washington and said, we're going to close down. And then he his actions matched his words. And this is the, you know, the platonic or the Aristotelian ideal, you know, the philosophical that, you know, you talk the talk and you walk the walk. And so he flew home that evening. So I think that Irish people or as a society, you know, we, I think we feel that there is, um, you know, the 2K limit, the 5K limit. We all bought into it because we felt that there was a rationale and a reason for it and our needs were being met. I think the danger at the moment is that the messaging has become less clear. The language that's being mobilised around the vaccination programme is, is quite vague. It's not very ambitious. And, and again, this is not the fault of even Donnelly or, or Mihal Martin or Leo Varadkar. It's just that there is uncertainty. The schools have closed. We have Brexit in place and we've had some disruption of supply for uh, supermarkets. So I think we haven't had civil unrest um, to any great extent because of, because of the buy-in and because our, our government and our agencies like the Health Services Executive, Department of Health and Children, Department of Social Protection, have behaved coherently. if you look in other jurisdictions that's not the case so in the uk i don't think that their their government or their agencies have acted coherently or even logically in the united states nor have they and so i think there is the danger in in those jurisdictions or there is a greater propensity or potential uh for for civil disturbance but uh, you know i think i think so far so good but i think there is a limit of exploitation i think there's an elastic limit to people's um capacity to how would i put it endure the uncertainty mm. so hopefully in the coming months you know there will be a little bit more certainty arising from you know particularly when supply like one one thing that reassures me about the the, the vaccination program is uh, people like professor brian mccra and paul Reed, the chief executive of hse i mean i get the sense these are very very good people who are absolutely doing their utmost. And in in both cases, they're very, very straight talkers. So unlike, say, for example, previous CEOs of the HSE, you know, they're not, uh, Paul Reed isn't presidential in his style. He doesn't use management speak. He just says it as it is or as Mm. he sees it. And so I I, I would be confident or optimistic that we will actually get out of this before there is any kind of uh, breakdown in the value consensus or, or, you know, people resorting to, desperate measures which is a, you know it's an expression of fear and panic when people take to the streets but we're not we're not there
1: i don't think so i think perhaps perhaps the vaccine, the vaccine is, that is that kind of buoyancy, buoyancy agent, agent that's, that's keeping us afloat i think there is hope in that, that isn't there? there it's we're clinging, we're clinging on, to it, it on to it i think is that right yeah
2: and, it, and and it's a great you know it's testament again to the, the international community that you know everybody did get together and uh you know there's collaboration sharing of data in order to get the vaccine to where it is in, in such a short period of time. But that's in the public sphere and in the in the public realm. But I think in the private sphere, in our own personal lives and behind closed doors, there is that price to be paid. So, so people will be experiencing stress and finding it difficult to accommodate to the uncertainty and to their routines being disrupted. Like one of the things I find tough in the last year is just the sheer confinement Not being able to um, travel beyond two k or five k, being confined to the house, working from home, I find that very very difficult. I miss the routine of traveling through the city to my place of work, of meeting my colleagues, even meeting my enemies. (laughs) (laughs) You know the people. You know where where are all the people I don't like? I miss them. Uh, You know, uh, being able to have a cup of coffee with some. And the other thing I miss, and again I I suppose I'm privileged. I haven't been on my own for 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 a year for for almost a year. I haven't had any time on my own. The only time I'm on my own is on the way to Tesco <laughs> in the car and I miss I miss those opportunities to be uh on my own. Now, I know that the corollary of that is that there are people there who are are on their own and have have been unable to to have company or to, you know, to to be with somebody else so but uh, but that you know is is what i find what i found particularly difficult and i would say like this is uh one of the wonderful things about experiencing the trauma was you know reading the international the the literature from the international military on stress they they say it's normal it's natural it's inevitable it's organic Don't, don't beat yourself up it's part of the concept so you know, they take all the guilt away from us and just say, you know, if you go into a stressful environment, you're going to be stressed out. And here's what you're going to be like. You're going to be irritable. You're going to be rude. You're going to be uh, argumentative, you know, all of those things that we're all experiencing at home. But they kind of say it's OK. Uh,
1: yeah, and, and that's not a bad, bad message bad to, hear. to
2: hear. Yeah. So I think, you know, for people, if you are feeling <laughs> irritable and, you know, if you are, fe- you know, the, so, for example, not being able to enjoy things. As you previously did. So if you were somebody who really enjoyed, you know, look forward to and enjoyed Christmas and then you found Christmas quite difficult this year or not as enjoyable or as uplifting. And, you know, you didn't get that adrenaline rush that you remember back to when you were a kid. It's it's because of the stressful environment that we're in. It's it's nothing to be overly concerned about. That will all come back. It's just, uh, you know, uh, symptomatic of the stressful environment that we find ourselves in. I I do think there is a kind of a narrative that, hey, you know, guys, this isn't a big deal. You know, all you're being asked to do is stay at home and wash your hands. No, this is a big deal. It's a Mm -hmm. huge deal for people, for all the reasons I've set out, you know, loss of income, loss of uh, ability to get out there and self-actualize through, you know, meaningful work in the real world, not not in a virtual space, Uh, being able to socialize, being able to uh, earn money, uh, being able to you know physically do the things that we do like we're social animals we're hardwired to be out there doing stuff and being confined whether it's in your family home nursing home or in a you know wherever that, that's unnatural and it's, it's very difficult to do, for people to deal with
1: and it's interesting that, that you bring up that brilliant concept of the difference between loneliness and being alone do you know what I mean and I think they're very different things that we do we seek alone time and and again and i think as a parent that has been difficult to find in the day you know and we spoke to um david o'rourke and she spoke about it and she mentioned that the year in lockdown has been the toughest year for her as a parent so far you know Mm. the 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 baby time all that sort of stuff so if we Go to Tom Clonan, the parent, and you've mentioned, you pi- pictured of the house where there's one below you on a in bed, one's on a, a lecture, one's doing TY, uh, you know, and it sounds, to use the phrase, a crowded house uh, yeah. in that sense. Parenting, Tom, for you, I mean, you four grown children or growing children, uh, a bit of both, and they're over quite a stretch. We we talked earlier in the in the series that sometimes our parenting template comes from our own experience of being parented. Uh, and I'm guessing whether being part of the army family, whether that impacts on your parenting either. Do you know what I mean? And, and I grew up with a family <laughs> nearby whose father was very high up in the army and they did have a kind of a militant lifestyle to how their day went. You know, there was kind of bits of that. So with all the mix-mash of your own experience of growing up, your own experience of being parented, becoming a parent, being a soldier, how has it impacted on how you see that role in your life? And you have a lot of roles and have had a lot of roles throughout your life. The role of being a dad. And I mean, I suppose the the additional needs that Owen has had as well, has had a different dimension to parenting. So how has it been? Where was the template for that? Was it what you expected? And
2: Okay. Well, so I grew, I grew up in Finglas and, um, my dad was a guard and he was, um, he was a, he was a big man. He was an authoritarian sort of individual and of his generation. So he, he wasn't a tactile sort of touchy feely kind of a parent. Um, and he, he, he was, but what he provided in our house was, I had this absolute confidence in in my father. Like he was such a an authority figure. I thought he was completely and utterly indestructible. And he was a guard, and he was a, he was a big he was a big man, you know. And like even to this day, I have a problem with the guards because I, asso- I associate them with parental authority, <laughs> and I always feel really guilty whenever I have an interaction with the guards. It's like it's like looking at my father,
1: you know. And um, so all I, those checkpoints out there at the moment, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I was parented
2: parented by. From his perspective, I was parented by the guards, clothed, fed. My godfather was a guard. Like oh, my dad's friends were all guards. But what it brought was this sense of security and routine. I I never I, I never I remember once we were back in the seventies. There was a big thing about uh, you know nuclear destruction that the, we were going to have World War Three. So people of our age will remember this. You know there used to be public information. Uh, ads about what to do in the event of a nuclear strike and i remember i, I watched a I, I must have been about nine and uh, it was about 1974 or 75 and i watched this thing on the bbc because in dublin you could get the bbc and i think it was panorama or something did what will happen uh, if there's a nuclear war and the only the only people that would survive i think were cockroaches and for some reason sheep and my father came in uh, from work and he looked at me and he said what's wrong with you and I said look on television i was only 9 i said we're all going to die and the only people left over are cockroaches and sheep and i remember he took a pull on a cigarette and he said uh, we're not cockroaches and he says we're not sheep he says don't mind that crap <laughs> and he says you know so there was always a sense of reassurance that everything was going to be fine so my father made everything possible uh, but my mother definitely made everything bearable <laughs> so my mother i had a very strong relationship and mother. I was one of the youngest in the family. I think probably the first in our family that my mom actually had time to hold me and to play. So I I now know as an adult that I was spoiled. (laughs) I was spoiled rotten. Uh, And uh, so I had a very happy childhood, very secure. But did you many siblings, Tom? So there was five of us, uh, three sisters and one brother. And, but definitely, growing up in Finglas. So I came from a very privileged background, dad being a guard, but I definitely went to school with people from a disadvantaged background and school was chaotic. And uh, we, we had very good teachers and very good schools. But back then, there was a lot of uh, corporate punishment and, and beatings. And uh, <laughs> even talking to some of my school friends today, it was like a kind of a survival thing, you know, just to get from one end of the day to the other. So in terms of being a parent now, actually the army was... Like, I was more afraid of my father than I was of anybody in the army. Like, the army was easy. Like, I remember, you know, when we started our training in the cadet school, it was really tough. And, you know, you'd have really tough, seasoned sergeants and corporals shouting at you. And, you know, like you see in the movies, you know, right up in your face and screaming and roaring. But, I mean, our biggest difficulty was trying not to laugh. Because, you know, we knew this is just, like, role playing and theatre and it,
1: it was fine. But I suppose... Well, what brought you to it, Tom? Why the army?
2: Well, come on, Sigmund Freud. I mean, my dad was a big man. I was only a little fella. Uh, and I, he was very distant from me. But when I joined the army, I was too short to join the guards back in the day. Um, so when I got into the cadet school and got into the army to train to be an army officer, all of a sudden, myself and my father, our relationship just opened up because he, he, he could talk to me then you know, it allowed for a certain amount of closeness. So I think uh, probably being drawn to the army, part of it was trying to please my father and trying to uh, get recognition from him. And it did that. But, you know, funnily enough, the the chaos and the anarchy of the Middle East, when I came back and he was asking me about it and we were talking about it and he said to me, you you shouldn't talk about this. I think it actually shocked him because it was Mm. totally outside of his frame of reference. But as a parent myself, the one thing I really appreciated, and I would say it's more from my father, not, not from the army was just a uh, routine and everybody feeling secure and having a uh, kind of rituals that are not punitive or purgatorial, but so we all like, we've been really lucky. Like we all sit down together for breakfast. We all sit down together every day for dinner and I do all the cooking and and that's one of those of life, just being able to do that and just to be in their presence. So I know before I joined the army, I was a primary school teacher. So I know from my teacher training that if you get if you get things half right as a teacher or as a parent, you're doing really well. So I haven't really been hung up about trying to, you know, really pressure cooker the kids. Uh, I, I hope that each of them, you know, like I know for my own siblings, we're all very, very different people, even though we grew up under the same roof. I hope that each of them can can be the person that that they're going to be. My job is to is to be there for them, to try and support them, and as as best I can. But not to direct them necessarily. Um, obviously, I direct them. You know, why don't you be a doctor? <laughs> why don't you be uh, uh, you know a, a partner in one of the big legal firms? That's a great job. Yeah, uh, you know, don't join the don't, whatever you do. Don't so you know you you direct to a certain extent. But really, it's trying to let them be who, all that they can be. So I, I know from, I suppose, life experience that they're going to be all right. They're going to find their way. They'll find their footing. So I don't have that burden. Uh, now, with Owen, it's different because with Owen, there are huge parts of Owen's development and his uh, living a meaningful life. I, I have to depend on others for that. So for all the other kids, it's down to me. It's down to their mum and what we do and the supports we put in place and what we try to do for them. But with Owen, it is out of my control. And that, that is really, really difficult because, unfortunately, my experience in Ireland has been that he is continuously let down by o- other people who, who are supposed to um, look after his, his best interests. So we're, uh, not, not medical professionals, um, not his clinicians, institutionally uh, individuals are great but so sometimes you know he's let down by the department of education he'll be let down by the department of health department of social protection you know for all sorts of just the amount of obstacles that are put in his way and for him to lead a meaningful fulfilled and happy life and and as a father so you mentioned at the very outset that i'm a campaigner for 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 people like my son Uh, as a parent and a carer in ireland you automatically Become a campaigner by no choice, because you have to campaign for everything. Nothing arrives like you very rarely ever are told about anything. Like, for example, the blue sign to put in the car for for wheelchair parking. You have to you have to find out from the community of parents and carers what supports are available. No, nobody will tell you. Not even the social workers, they they won't tell you. You, you have to go and find out, and then fight for everything, and it just takes up so much time, and it's exhausting. And uh, so, Ireland is unfortunately one of the worst places in Europe um, to have a disability on every measurement. You know, socialisation, suboptimal medical outcomes, poverty, homelessness. It's just Ireland is not, not is is one of the worst countries to have a disability, and I, it's shame. It's such a shame. To say that. Um, so we have a, a long way to go in that regard. And so sometimes I find. That that is very very stressful. That keeps me awake at night. Wondering. Uh, like I know hopefully. That my other kids are, are they're going to do stuff. And they're going to find their own way. But with do I, I couldn't tell you what the future holds for him. Like when I die. I have no idea. Where he will live. How he will live what kind of a life you'll have, who will do the things that I do for, just, I don't know, I'm his primary carer. I I just, I can't answer those questions. And I find that really tough as, um, you know, as a fifth, I'll be 55 this year, you know, having served my country abroad and being on top of everything and um, to suddenly find at this stage in my life that I, I just, I can't answer those questions. And Ireland has been great for the lgb our, our lgbtiq brothers and sisters in terms of you know really getting behind that our, our whole community to vindicate their rights with marriage equality we're improving oh we've a long way to go when it comes to women's rights we're we're, in, we're not, not great but we're improving like so for example the referendum on women's reproductive rights the eighth eighth amendment like all good stuff what really frustrates me is that we, we can't mobilise that sense of profound investment in the human rights of, of Irish citizens who are just different because of, uh, you know, a physical difference or an intellectual difference, if they might be neurodiverse. You know, I, I'd I'd love to be able to get a kind of a yes equality campaign, a real vibrant radical campaign around disability rights. And the disability area is so fragmented and fractured, you know, you have intellectual disability on one hand, physical disability on the other hand, and there's a lot of kind of political stuff going on there. But what I took great comfort from was the LGBTQI community mobilised the straight community to get behind them. Not because they felt sorry for them or because they were doing them a favour, but they knew it was the right thing to do. And the same with the so-called able community to get behind us. Uh, how we do that, I I don't know. I'm thinking of um, maybe something like a pride march where we have a, a march every year where all of us, people like my son, me, carers, all of us, all the, all the wonky citizens will get out there and be proud of ourselves and try and get the population marching with us and behind us. So that, that's something I'd like to see. But one of the features of this COVID crisis, though, is now, so I've, 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 tried, I've tried to highlight the the sense of having no control with Owen and having to rely on others is very upsetting and very that that's tough, especially when you see them, you see him being let down repeatedly. But what I found in in the current crisis is with the other kids is that for the first time, I feel really, really guilty all the time about, I don't even, I don't even know what I'm feeling guilty about, but I feel really guilty all the time. So I'm here talking to you. The 20 year old is down below me and I'm wondering, should I go down and get him up and, maybe try and get him to do something. My daughter who's 16 is not having the experiences in transition year that she would otherwise have had. She can't go to a workplace. She can't do any really meaningful voluntary work. Uh, my youngest fella is down there. He's, he's probably, I noticed we keep losing our wifi signal. <laughs> he's beyond, I don't know. I think I saw something like crow of destiny or you know some some game you know and then when i walk past him he presses a button and it's back onto schoolwork so so i have this feeling of of guilt and i imagine lots of parents up and down the country feel that as well about i should be doing something and i suppose the answer is we can't really do anything at the moment we're kind of caught in this strange space and I, i find that i've never felt that about the other kids before and it's kind of not far off how i feel sometimes about owen just that the guilt and the frustration and the fear of not being able to, to fully support them or scaffold them at this time. And, and
1: it's, it's, that has come up so many times, Tom, in, in the interviews that we've done about you know, this kind of sense of I can't fix it for them. Do you know what I mean? I can't make this yeah. happen. And uh, you and I both know Shea Byrne and, and Shay in his interview talked about uh, his daughter and her confirmation being cancelled. And it was cancelled three times and she was getting into her her outfit and he admitted himself to getting quite choked up remembering that because he couldn't fix it for her, couldn't make it happen. And I think we've all probably been given a taste of that powerlessness in some respects. But when we have had people who've spoken in this first series about children with needs and everyone says that same thing, that you become an advocate by default. You have to fight for everything. Everything There's nothing simple and the the time and the investment and the energy necessary for that. But there's a, a, an interesting question I was hoping to ask you about how do you marry the, the idea in your head of fighting and advocating and that the other piece kind of accepting that things are the way they are, not from a service point of view, but from uh, a life point of view? Because... I, I'm guessing that's a challenge when you have somebody who you feel powerless about changing things and you're trying and you and your, your own history, Tom, would say that you, you make changes happen and you, you are an advocate and you don't just talk the talk, you walk the walk from that point of view. How is that for you as a parent, as an advocate uh, in a system that is largely unresponsive? So it makes you very angry.
2: So, for example, one thing that I learned in the Irish Army. So the Irish Army is unusual in, in the European context in that we, it, its origins lie in a revolutionary organisation, the IRA. So in 1922, you're probably wondering, where is he going with this? In 1922, the, the British left the country and the British Army left all their barracks to us. So we inherited the physical infrastructure left behind by the British Army. And then in the 1920s, the Irish Republican Army becoming the Free State Army, it inherited the physical infrastructure that the Brits left behind. And then they adopted some of the cultural infrastructure, you know, officers, other ranks, officers, messes, even the uniforms, which haven't changed much, you know, since the 1920s. But the one thing that the Irish Army has never forgotten is its revolutionary background. So in the training, you are trained to fight. And that is the absolute bottom line. You're here to fight. And the assumption is that you will always be the underdog, that you will never have as much material, personnel, equipment. You're always going to be in a very tight spot. So what the Irish Army culturally does, and it, it really, it, it's a very, very hard training. The officer training in the, in the Irish Army is, is really, really hard. They teach you to exploit yourself and everybody around you to the absolute maximum. And that puts you under a great deal. So the, they really... Train you to fight. So, I've taken that. So, what you do is you identify, locate, and close with the enemy to destroy them, (laughs) not to talk to them or have a chat with them. It's that's it. It's it's that simple. You identify, locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. So, in Owen's situation, whether it's the Department of Social Protection revoking his public services card. And his little free travel card, or the Department of Health and Children revoking his medical card, which they do routinely, or if it's you know the HSE telling me that um you know his his equipment can't be serviced or there's nobody to fix his his power chair when, when it breaks down, this kind of impulse to fight kind of takes over, and so I found myself unfortunately. Every week, Coleman, it's every week. And this is for all carers and parents, people. Who just, like, you're fighting with somebody every week. So this week, I was fighting with a government agency about the servicing of his equipment. And last week, you know, it, it was... So, so you're always having to put on the boxing gloves and fight. So I was driving around traffic a few times and I suddenly realised, you know, I was listening to the radio and I was getting really, really... Worked up about what I was listening to on the radio. I was getting really exercised about it, and I was going, "Why? Why am I getting so exercised about this?" And then I realised eh, because I'm angry. I'm angry a lot of the time. So unfortunately, because of the casual uh, cruelty to Owen, so he can't get the dart in, into town because the lifts are broken, or there's nobody in the station that because of cutbacks they can't have somebody in the station all the time, so you have to ring pierce station to get somebody to be there you to tell them about your travel plans you know routine like he can't access some of of his textbooks because they haven't been printed or, you notice know, he so can't access the curriculum and you, you know you find yourself interacting with people who are quite casual about this and say well that's just the way it is and then you so i have this impulse to fight that and call it out and try to get some bring somebody to account and if Owen, like that's not the person who I am, but that is the person who by default I have become. And, and that's something I, I really, I really don't like, but I didn't choose to be in this situation. This is the card. This is the hand that was dealt to us. Owen's illness is like a random point mutation that led to his neuromuscular disease. But I'm dealing with people every day who've chosen to be in either health or social welfare or something to do with disability. And they've chosen to be in that environment. And they've, they've, they've mobilized all sorts of energy to get there. And now they're there and they're not doing what they're supposed to do. And I find that that makes me really, really angry. And um, and then I end up having interactions with people that are suboptimal. You know, they're not great reac- inter- interactions. And it's probably terrible for them, you know, to have an angry not not even angry, but just somebody who's like trying to call, call them to account. And so that is the one, one thing personally with all this that I, I don't like is have, having to fight. So sometimes, you know, people will say, oh, you're great. You know, you're you're fighting for the, for the rights of people like your son and others. And as part of me thinks, yeah, but that's not that's not who I want to be. I'd prefer like a, I wonder what it would be like to take up golf, <laughs> 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 or, you know, maybe to go kite surfing or. You I just don't, don't have time for any of those things. My, unfortunately, my job is to fight, but the army gave me a great training, gave me a great kick up the backside as a young man and
1: said, this is the direction, there's north. You have to, to fight for everything. And and Tom, the, the issue around, you know, becoming a, a fighting for to destroy versus fighting to change, you know, there's a difference outcome, you know, about that. And I 100% agree with you. And the more... I hear the stories on the podcast. The need for a revolution is necessary. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and and I've said this numerous times. If we could make it, I don't mean to uh, cool almost. You know the the idea of the the repeal t-, t shirts or the you know the marriage equality referendum. The the level of support that that could engender. If we could get that far, for children with disabilities, people with disabilities, for p- children with additional needs, I, I do think that's something that's worth fighting for, actually, in some respects. But in your in your history, and I, I, I mentioned this in the in your intro, and I, I think the listeners would be disappointed if I didn't ask you about it. One of the things you are known for, Tom, is about bringing about change. And I don't know whether you like the term whistleblower, but there, that has been a tag that has been attached to you in media circles and things like that. But can you tell us about your experience of making institutional change or standing up for something that really was difficult to do at the time. What, and I, I suppose I go back to maybe thinking about your mum and dad, what drove you to have that commitment or that perseverance or the the initiative or the gusto or or the endurance to stick with that when there were so many challenges? And if, if you could tell us a little bit about that, I, I think... Yeah, a lot of people so, might get something from that story. So when I came back from Lebanon uh, and again it was very very violent
2: and I I didn't like it. <laughs> I, I I just I knew I think something there was a fundamental shift inside me and I realized this, this is not for me. I'm not I'm not I don't want to be I don't want to be in the army anymore. I, I just the the violence and the sense of perilousness in front of, like, we, we couldn't, we couldn't stop the killing. Now, we definitely saved hundreds, thousands of lives, but we couldn't stop the killing. And just, it it's the most sordid, appalling violence and conflict and war is just, I I, I don't have the words to describe it. It's just, and it had an impact on me. So I knew I had to get, I had to leave, I had to leave the Defence Forces. So the army is great. They encourage education. Um, I had a master's degree, so I decided to do a PhD. So I decided to do a doctorate as a as an army officer, as a captain, serving army officer. I applied to the general staff in for permission to do a PhD, looking at the experiences of women in, in the in the Irish armed forces. And I think the reason for for exploring their experience was probably informed by my. You know, I grew up in a matriarchal household to a certain extent, like my mum, my three sisters. Uh, my grandmother lived with us uh, for a period of time when I was a little boy. My grandmother was in Cum and the Man, which is a paramilitary organisation that was active during the War of Independence and the Civil War. She was attached to the South Dublin Brigade of the IRA. Um, she taught the School of Regia from the, Ireland's first Gael School. So she taught there from 1919 to 1965. And during the War of Independence... She was attached to the South Dublin Brigade of the IRA and she participated in arson attacks on police stations. They abducted a number of individuals in, in the South Dublin area. So she was a real typical woman, multitasker, schoolteacher by day and arsonist and freedom fighter at night. Uh, so she came to live with us one, pretty much after I was born. And she kind of took me under her wing and spoiled me again. This is a recurring theme. I was spoiled by my grandmother, by. So I knew that women had played a a, a very active role in in the War of Independence and in the Civil War, but I didn't see that in our history books in school. I knew from my experience in Lebanon the role that women played in conflict and how much, you know, how the story of conflict as presented in media was all about men and weapons systems and, you know, the the, the true full story uh, remains untold. You know, where, what happens to men, women and, you know, ordinary people? Soldiers are only a tiny part of, of any conflict. So I did the PhD and as part of, so it really was a kind of a, an audit of the experiences of women in our armed forces. And unfortunately, the study, it revealed really, really high levels. I mean, shockingly high levels of sexual violence and um, sexual assault and rape amongst female personnel that female personnel were systematically discriminated against in the Irish Army in the 90s, and that they were subjected to bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, sexual assault and rape. And as part of the research, I interviewed 60 women, a maximum variation sample, and 59 of those 60 women reported some form of bullying, harassment, sexual assault, up to and including accounts of rape. And that, that was like profoundly shocking for me. So the military authorities were very, very supportive of me. As was DCU Dublin City University, but when I reported my findings, the military authorities uh, back back then in two thousand, for I, I think they they may have panicked at the, the the very stark and negative findings, but they embarked on what what we now know is is called whistleblower reprisal. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know I was a whistleblower. I was just an army officer who was doing his duty, doing his PhD, and doing what I knew to be the right thing in. I suppose, calling a halter, drawing attention to systematic and systemic discrimination and sexual violence against women. And this was 25 years before, you know, hashtag me too. But the military authorities did not like it. They didn't like this inconvenient truth. They didn't like me anymore. So I went from being a very valued, promoted member of the organization who was working as a staff officer for the chief of staff. I went from, from that to being persona non gratis and I was the subject of a a major campaign of character assassination uh, mounted by the military authorities. I was threatened with everything from criminal prosecution for breaching the Official Secrets Act, an allegation that they made, which is a criminal offence, to I almost lost my job because they alleged that I had falsified the research, fabricated its findings. So it took an independent government inquiry, which I looked for, from Michael Smith, the then Minister for Defence, and he very kindly And luckily for me, agreed. So there was an independent government inquiry called the Study Review Group, which which looked at my research and expanded the the focus to look at the experiences of young male soldiers. And so in 2003, my findings were fully vindicated. But the relationship between me and the army was completely destroyed. And they tried to destroy me and they tried to annihilate my reputation as, as a researcher, as an army officer, as a veteran as a good citizen, as a good person. But the independent government inquiry uh, vindicated my findings and the armed forces, the defence forces have now transformed themselves um, with regard to equality, dignity and diversity. So unfortunately, though, it led to that period, a prolonged period of whistleblower reprisal, which was very, very difficult to to cope with. And it coincided, and we've talked about this before, it coincided with a time in my life where you know, my mum passed away. I lost one of my sisters to cancer. We lost a little girl, a little baby girl, Leoden. And then Owen got his diagnosis of his neuromuscular disease. Very, very tough time. But happily, last year, after 20 years, the, the current chief of staff, you know, invited me to back to the military college after 20 years, you know, where it all started, where I, where I began my military training back in the, in the late 80s and they for the first time acknowledged the contribution that my research had made to the transformation of of the defense forces they uh, thanked me for carrying out the research and apologized for the uh, the reprisal uh, and the impact that it had on me and on my family so so i'm i'm very proud of the fact that i called out sexual violence against my sisters in arms and you know if, if it helps to make the workplace safer for any any woman or any man anywhere then you know it was all worth it it was, it was it was a pity but you know that's a feature of life in Ireland now it is improving but certainly up until recently you know if you if you spoke if you spoke truth to power in Ireland you are very likely to to suffer very negative consequences and outcomes but things are improving
1: and I think that's the question I'd love to ask you, Tom, is, is in any walk of life, we tend to choose the path of least resistance. Do you know what I mean? And I'm guessing there were opportunities along the way where if you'd have buried your research findings or if you'd kept quiet, that things would have been a great deal easier for you in your life than choosing the path of righteousness, I suppose, in that sense and kind of sticking to your guns and despite the intimidation and the personal traumas and losses in your own life around that time to, to keep going. What was it that kept you going in those moments? Um, or were there moments where you said, Oh, this isn't worth it. I'll pack this in. Well,
2: I, I enjoyed the full support of the the military authorities um, right up until the very moment that the, the PhD was completed. So I, I had, I remember I said earlier, I trusted my superiors when I was in Lebanon. I trusted the operations officer. I trusted the adjutant. I trusted the battalion commander. And I trusted my colleagues and I trusted the chief of staff because they had supported me at every phase of that research process. So when the PhD was lodged to the library and its findings were published, my understanding was that they would act on those and end the gender-based discrimination and the gender-based violence, but they didn't. Now, in terms of, uh, so I didn't see this coming. I didn't know that there was going to be a big struggle. But one of the things I learned, you know, you, you, you can come up with a moral rationale for lying. You know, you can you, you can come up with a, a kind of a, a rationale for, for when it's okay to tell a lie, you know, to save your life. You can come up with a rationale for, for theft, You know, to steal food to to stay alive, or and even for killing. I mean, that's why armies exist. You know, to save (laughs) to save life or to prevent um, the killing of others. You can provide a a moral rationale for killing, but the one thing, species for which we can find no moral rationale is sexual violence. Sexual violence against a man, a woman, or a child. There is no there's no ambiguity there. So I had an absolute categorical moral imperative to report those findings as soon as I became aware of them. And I make no apologies for that. And if there are people in the in the army still who have a problem with the fact that I called out rape and sexual assault, and if it's an offence to, to try to bring an end to that, then, you know, take me out and hang me in the morning. It's just, it, for me, it was a no-brainer. I just had to go forward with it. I didn't anticipate, or I didn't know then, that there were people amongst whom were people I, I thought were my friends who were prepared to behave in the way that they behaved, you know, with, with no no boundaries, no, no standards whatsoever. People who lied about me and people who alleged that I falsified the research, that I fabricated its findings, that I selected, you know, women that I knew somehow, had, you know, just made allegations about my integrity, about the ethical probity of my research. And yet, you know, at the time, Coleman, my research was being supervised by Dublin City University, right up to the level of the registrar. The registrar became involved when it was clear that the findings were so stark. The registrar of Dublin City University uh, required of me to get a letter of comfort from the chief of staff. Every I was probably the most supervised research student in, in Ireland's history. And yet, when the findings were published... I was accused of having acted somehow uh, with impropriety, lacking integrity. So, you know, I mean, apart from the, the subject matter itself, you know, the awful experiences and behaviours that th- these women were target, my, my colleagues were targeted with. Apart from that, what I found very interesting was the behaviour of all the so-called good people, my friends. You know, why did they behave the, the way they behaved? Why was I completely and utterly isolated and shunned, lied about, threatened, physically assaulted for doing the right thing. That's that's kind of that's concerning. And I've 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 done a bit of publishing and, and, and research in relation to that in in the context of whistleblower reprisal. But I would say, though, that generally speaking, um, Transparency International Ireland, John Devitt of, of Transparency International Ireland and people like Professor Kate Kenny an NUIG who specialise in researching into the experience of whistleblowers, they tell me that, you know, Ireland is definitely improving in that regard. So there was a time until quite recently that all whistleblowers experienced reprisal, but not so much now. And I think people are, our society is evolving, has become a little bit more mature where they're beginning to recognise that people who call out wrongdoing are actually good citizens and good people and should be, you know, recognised as such. And certainly not not um, uh,
1: punished or targeted in the way that I was. And and unfortunately, time is against us, Tom, but uh, when, when you think about, and I introduced you as somebody who, who has always struck me as having resilience, perseverance, focus, and everything that we've talked about today has kind of backed that up from that point of view. But the issue of, say, we're, we're, there's parents out there now who are struggling with this 11-month lockdown. There are maybe parents out there who've just had a small child with a diagnosis of additional needs, if there's parents out there who have, you know, are experiencing bullying or intimidation in the workplace or, you know, whatever that might be. What is it, if, if there is a way of kind of, because some people say, you know, you only get resilience through adversity. So you need to have these kind of rough experiences in order to be resilient. My, I, I always claim that that's maybe not, true that you the resilience is there maybe before that or or you know rather than it being dependent on it if you're to to help us as listeners get through what can sometimes seem insurmountable or to stay on course with a, a passion or a fight or a a revolution despite kind of obstacles and barriers what would that be tom
2: well the first thing i'd say is don't feel guilty because you're you're finding, like don't feel ashamed So very often, you know, people who are targeted, bullying the workplace was one of the things you mentioned. People who are targeted by bullies in workplace, sometimes they feel, what have I done wrong? What have I done to deserve this? People who are finding it very difficult to cope with, you know, a child that has very, very complex needs, they feel guilt. I know this personally. They feel guilty. They feel that they have failed in some way. So the first thing I would say is take all that guilt and shame and dump it and replace it with, a good mixture of anger (laughs) and, you know, know, fire up the rockets and ask for help and, and talk to people about, don't be ashamed. Talk to other people, even, you know, what has really struck me over the years is the amount of good people out there. The, the numbers of good people far outnumber the, the people who cause problems. And I've had academics, lawyers, people in the HSC, neighbors, who have represented turning points in my life and who have really helped, you know, brought me to this, the space that I'm in now, you know, really, really good people. And uh, there's lots of them out there, but you, you, unfortunately people can't uh, insure what, what's going on with you. you. You have to communicate. You've got to tell people what's going on, share it with a, a family member or friend. But, but, so the first thing I would say is jettison the guilt. You don't have to carry that. And you don't ever have to forgive anybody for anything. They have to forgive themselves for what they've done. That's not your burden to carry. You don't ever carry any shame or guilt and communicate and then get ready to fight. Because you've got to fight for you know, you've got to fight for your right to party, unfortunately. The, who knew the Beastie Boys <laughs> <laughs> provide such a profound uh, philosophical position? But it's true, you've got to fight. We all have to fight.
1: And I can't think of a more fitting way to to conclude the interview on that one. Uh, A quote from the Beastie Boys. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. It is one, and it always leaves me with a bit of fire in the belly. I always leave my chat with you wanting to kind of, uh, a brothers in arms almost. It must be either your army training, but into the trenches we go. Uh, But no, I I think you've hit on some really important points. And when when we are in a place where we feel powerless, where we are in a place where maybe the consensus of the given moment is telling us to do nothing. That's probably when we have to do it more than ever, if that makes sense. Yeah. And uh, I just want to say, Tom Clonan, thank you so, so much for your time. you honesty. on. Thank you very much. And uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with the show, you can get us on uh, gmail.com. You can get to us on the Twitter and Instagram handles. And uh, until the next time, Take care, stay safe, and bye for now.
0: That was a wonderful Tom Clonan there, and I hope all of you got something out of that conversation. I always, without fail, get something from our conversations with Tom just because he just exudes that kind of resilience and grit and all of those things I think we all need right now. And a uh, special thanks to Tom for giving his time and his insights so generously. and for everyone else if you have any questions around anything and anything you're struggling with at the moment we'll be doing another listeners questions episode next week so if you have any questions get them into asking at gmail.com or direct messages on the twitter instagram and facebook pages but until then take care stay safe and bye for now